I think one thing that, that could be helpful for couples and bring a lot of connection and understanding of each other is telling your money story to your spouse. What was it like in your grandparents' house around money? What was it like in your parents' house around money? And what were the messages, the beliefs that you inherited around money from your grandparents, aunts and uncles, parents, so that your spouse has a better understanding about maybe why you overspend or oversave or overly worry about money? That I found very helpful, or maybe even give you some insight into how to deal with the fact that things are uneven. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Spencer Sherman to the show. Now, Spencer is an incredible guest. He runs an incredible financial planning firm called Abacus Wealth Management. And I got to connect with Spencer through Joyce Martyr, a past guest of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. And he said, Ed, I'm really enjoying you, but I think you need to talk to Spencer. He's really into mindfulness. He's just an all-around good guy. He's running a great firm. And so I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So Spencer, welcome to the show. I imagine you have a world of wisdom in your years of experience working with couples and money. So um Excited to pick your brain and think here how you uh, help couples move through those inevitable challenges they face. I'm excited too. I, I think about money is a challenging enough topic, and then we're going to combine it with couples, another challenging topic. But let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's solve big problems here. Let's go out yes. big topics. And you know, I think what's so interesting, and maybe before I start asking you too many questions, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and your journey? About how did you get to lead a very large fee-only financial planning RIA. Yeah. So I started out, I got my, I got an MBA from business school and I thought it was all about numbers. I mean, I was this math major. I was very analytical, probably had zero awareness of my emotions, zero awareness that money contains so much emotion. And it was kind of a, a real catalyst for me when a client told me that if they could reach a certain financial goal, you know, I think it was around five million dollars, that they'd be able to retire, they'd be free. And when when he got when he arrived at that number, he wasn't free. He and his wife they actually felt like they needed so another doubling of their money. They needed, you know, once they got there, they, there was no sense of having arrived. And it was so clear to me that this field of money, and it was very humbling, is not so analytical. It is to some degree, but underneath our money decisions is often a lot of emotion, fear, anxiety, a lot of fixed beliefs that we pick up from childhood. And it kind of made this profession that much more interesting. I mean, at first it was like, 
wow, I don't know if I could do this profession because I thought I was entering a very logical profession. Like they say that the best thing to do with investing is just to buy and hold. Right. And yet that's not what we do as human beings. Like, why are we defying the basic rules of finance? Right. Spend within your means. And we don't necessarily do that. So this field became so fascinating to me. And that's why I brought in mindfulness. I needed to do a lot of mindfulness because I had like zero emotional intelligence when I started out. And that's been such a, a wonderful combination to bring the mindfulness in with my business background, because I do feel like I'm always talking to both sides, the emotional side of money, and then there's the dollar and cent side. And sometimes I will encourage the client to listen to their emotions. Like just yesterday, somebody said to me, is it okay that I want to have, they were saying a half a million dollars in savings accounts. And from a financial point of view, it may not make sense to have that much money earning a lower return. But I said, if it makes you feel so much safer and more grounded, more at ease, do it. It's worth it. I think, I mean, that's such a great, powerful example. And your story, it feels like for listeners of the podcast, they'll probably start seeing this theme that there's a lot of us that start out on the very analytical side thinking it's just a numbers problem. If we can solve the number problem. Yes. Everything else is done. Like, I mean, and now with the software being as good as easy, but yeah, it's not. We're humans. We have our own relationship with money that biases some of the ways that we want to help clients or not help clients. And then clients have their own own money journeys. But I I think your example about, oh, well, I want to hold on to a half million dollars in cash. And some people might say, well, I'd love to have that. And some people might be saying, what, that's all? And so I just, yeah. Knowing, like, as you hear this number and you're listening, just notice your own reactions. But yes, yes, thanks for saying that because I noticed that I was having some hesitancy on sharing the number, but I'm also a believer in specificity. Ed, so I was like going back and forth and then I shared it. But really, it's, you know, if I was to say it another way, it would be that usually people will, advisors will say, have six to 12 months of your living expenses in a savings account. And this represents for this person probably about three years. So like more than two or three times what any financial advisor would normally recommend in a savings account. So just to give it some some perspective. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think there's always two sides. I mean, buying a home, selling a home, selling a business. You've got to look at the numbers, but you also have to look at what's right emotionally for you and your situation, your family. And sometimes you do things that aren't going to maximize. You don't optimize dollars. You have to optimize something else. Oh, I think that's a really important thing. For the people that are the business-minded, you kind of get trained in optimization. But the optimization is usually around a financial outcome. But there are other areas that could be optimized. Can you kind of talk about what does that mean to maybe broaden your lens and and I want to introduce this because I was really intrigued. You're a B Corp. And this is a new designation to me, but it, I'm, I imagine it, it joins with what we're talking about here. It's just this idea that it's not just about maximizing profitability or financial outcome. Yes. 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 I mean, B Corp is about being a, a company that is aware of its impact on the world, you know, environmentally, the, how they treat employees. So there's a, there are all these tests that you go through and measures to determine if you can become a B Corp. But 
it's basically about put, you're putting a, you're having less impact, less negative impact on the outer world. And for that, certain municipalities will actually tax B Corps less. I believe in Philadelphia today, you actually have a lower tax rate if you're a B Corp because you're not impacting like the environment as much, for example. But I think I also want to use the example you, you were sort of asking me about this optimization thing. And I thought the idea, and I thought maybe we can bridge into couples for a moment, because I think that's a perfect place where one spouse is saying, hey, look, it's look, look how much money we'll have when we retire if we save $2,000 a month or $5,000 a month, right? And it's clear. Look at the numbers. Look at it. Look at it. It's, we're going to have so much more money. We're going to be able to do whatever we want. And the other spouse is saying, well, what about living today? What about enjoying our lives? And what if we don't get there? You know, you're saying we're going to have all this money in our 80s. What if we don't get to our 80s? And it's like that spouse might be optimizing for wellness today. The other spouse is optimizing for money later on. And neither one is right or wrong. They're just different perspectives. And I think that's what makes, that's what can make a couple situation really rich is that their perspectives, if they're, if they can listen well to each other, <laughs> they can see that I always feel like we marry people to learn, to balance ourselves out. I think that's a natural tendency we have. And that your spouse, no matter how well you can prove that your spouse is wrong, your spouse is bringing something to the table that could help you out in your life. Wait, I want to hit the pause there. This is that we marry people to learn. Just listeners, take a moment to let that sink in. Because it's such a, a productive and healthy way of seeing the role or purpose of marriage. And that's something I'll ask couples a lot of times. Well, what's the meaning or purpose of marriage? And oftentimes I'll kind of get a blank stare back. They haven't really thought through it. But I think that's a really nice piece to hang on to here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's to recognize is that your differences are actually a, actually a blessing. They can be a blessing because if you take two people who are extreme, let's say, savers or spenders and you put them together, that could be disaster. I mean, you're just like going to be so frugal that you'll never live. Or if you're both spenders, you're just going to spend everything and never have anything for tomorrow. So it's nice to have somewhat of a balance. Usually, people in a couple situation will polarize to some degree. One spouse will say, wait a second, somebody's got to be the saver here. You can't both spend so recklessly. So one person will likely step up. But I, I find often people will be drawn to somebody who is going to kind of balance th- themselves out in some ways, particularly around our, our money issues. And I think that often can lead to a lot of harmony in a relationship to recognize that, to see that, that the differences are a a good thing. From my perspective and training, I think that that's really one of those tasks along the journey of marriage, you know, especially after kind of what we call the infatuation phase where we're head over heels and can't see the problems the other person brings to the table or their different views, right? It's you you live with someone long enough and you start to see that how different you can be around different topics and spending and saving is the one that comes up a lot around money. And you know, when you were t- describing this yeah. couple, I was thinking, well, Spencer has us nailed. And this is a big part of why I went on this journey is early in my young adulthood, I was very focused on 
paying down debt as fast as I could and saving as much money as I possibly could. All the influence, and I'll just name it, Dave Ramsey, for me at that time was mm-hmm. the yes. thing. And I was just locked on that this is the way to do money. This is the one true right way. And as I met my wife and tried to share this philosophy with her, let's just say it did not fly very well. Yes, yes, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, if you want to say anything more about what do you feel was the benefit, what has been the benefit about, of her perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, what it is, to your point, right, it's the, and living for today, enjoying a little bit more today, what's going on. And as I say that, there's some subtlety and nuance there. And like, as our lives have changed, I think she's a little more focused on saving the future. And I'm a little more just like, let's live for today and not worry. And, you know, this Kind of the- Isn't that beautiful? So you you both expanded in a way around money, but really in some ways you've expanded just in general because you're less locked in with a certain frame of a way of being in life or way of being with money. So I think that's a beautiful thing. Like you've both grown from this experience. I think that's great. And it's really, really good. And yeah, I mean, it comes up, it's like one one spouse wants more risky investments, once the other one spouse wants to own a lot of houses. The other person like wants to rent or maybe just own one house. So these can all be different ways or of handling the finances. One wants to give to every you know crisis that happens in the world. The other wants to just have like a couple of charities that you give to every year. So there can be all these differences. And sometimes there can be an opportunity to share the, you know, to like say, okay, well, why don't you have you have your charity money, I have my charity money, and then we have some money that we give away together. That's the way I've handled that aspect for, for some clients. That's been really helpful. And sometimes even with spending in general, it can be helpful to have, well, here, you know, you're each going to have some of your own spending, like for buying each other birthday gifts or other things. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it isn't. It really depends on each, each situation. So would you say the name of the game for couples in navigating money is flexibility? That there's not one right prescription? Yeah, I would say it's it's a couple of things. One is this awareness but that, believe it or not, I don't know any everything. None of us knows everything, which is a hard thing to get to for some of us, especially around money, because some of us feel like we know it all. We've read all the books. <laughs> and yet, you know, the evidence is, and this is the, you know, going to maybe surprise some of us, the evidence that came out, I think Fidelity did a study on this, Vanguard did a study on this, that people who know less about, for example, investing end up performing better. So that maybe can quiet down some of the arrogance that some of us have who have read every investment book. That often leads to lower returns. So you want to listen to your spouse who maybe doesn't know as much because that person might be more willing to follow the simple investment guidelines that have led to success over the last hundred years. So it's a, that's what makes this field so fascinating to me is it's not always the more knowledgeable spouse who, who's going to perform better with their finances. And if you're not that knowledgeable, you should know that you have every, that you should feel confident that it's very possible for you to do well financially, even if you don't know a lot. Wow, Spencer, there's so much hope in what you're saying and encouragement is you don't have to get an MBA from a business school. You don't have to be a CFP. You don't have to have read 50 books. Meanwhile, I'm right. I was like, 
check, check, and check, right? Like done all those things. And I do think in some ways, my wife is more effective with money than me. I feel like I'm now on the, it's like I overthink, I overanticipate, I can get stuck in analysis paralysis. And I think there's a number of people yeah. that kind of think they can outsmart it by just knowing a little bit more. And it's like, sometimes it's just bringing it back to keep it simple. Keep it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's a very, I don't know, I'll call it a, a very mature, wise thing for you to say that, that she actually sometimes has better ideas or better decision-making ability about money than you do. I mean, I think that's really beautiful to come to that, to really see, you know, you asked me, what, what do people need? Do they need flexibility? I think it's flexibility. I think it's being able to see the gold in your partner around their financial abilities. Like there's something about your partner that is really wise about money. So see if you can discern that and then listen well, you know, affirm that the, your partner's idea to go on this great vacation that's going to cost so much money. I mean, at the very minimum, maybe you could just appreciate that they want to do something fun and validate first before you then look at, oh my God, how are we going to afford this? And I'd say the other thing, Ed, is that's been so helpful for couples is sometimes being able to look at things as if here's the challenge and let's put it out there. And how do we solve this challenge? So don't make it so personal. It's about me and you, but it's this challenge out here. How can we solve it together? And one question that's helped couples resolve this to kind of get into that headspace is for the couple to say, let's imagine that we're advising a friends of ours, another couple who have our exact financial situation, just by coincidence, that John and Sally down the corner, they have the exact financial situation we do, and they've come to us for help. How would we help them out? And that often like provokes our wisdom when we're talking about others, we're, we're, we can get more in that objective mind space and we're not in the fight flight mode or we're not trying to spar with our partner anymore. We're right. more likely to see, yeah, maybe they should do that vacation. I like that a lot. And I think that's, we get, we're so close to the vest on our own problems that it's hard to see in our own emotions, yes. new cloud, right. our judgment. And most of us are experts on how other people should solve their problems. Other people may not like our answers, yes. but the answers, the solutions we give are probably the solutions we actually would want for ourselves. So I like that kind of removing it yes. and just saying, imagine it's as if it's your best friend couple and you want to help them solve their problem. You're going to give them some guidance and it'll probably literally access different parts of your brain. You do, you do. And we all have this common sense. I mean, maybe we would say, oh, they need to find out what current mortgage rates are. They need to find out if they can actually afford this house. Well, these are the kinds of things that we're often hesitant to tell ourselves because when we see a house we love, we've already bought it. We've fallen in love with it. We don't want to do the math and see if we can afford it or what the mortgage rates, you know, what the mortgage payment's going to be, what the maintenance is going to be on that house, that charming older home that I bought once. We don't want to look at what the, the estimated maintenance costs might be. But when we tell a friend, we will definitely say to that friend, you know, you're buying an older home. 
be wary of what that's going to cost you, not just for the mortgage, but for the maintenance. You know, it's that kind of stuff that we can be more objective with. And I'd say, you know, having regular check-ins with your spouse, I like to think of them almost like money dates, like make them fun. They, a lot of couples find that they work better if they're in a public space, a more neutral environment, like go out to dinner, make it fun. Like maybe it's once a month or once a quarter where you have this designated money date and you discuss what's coming up in terms of big expenditures or your incomes, if your incomes are variable, and you talk about things so you don't surprise each other. That can be really helpful. And then one other thing I was going to, that came to my mind that I want to share before I forget about it, that's really interesting with couples, I find, Ed, and I don't know if you found this. I mean, I've certainly experienced this, my own couple situation, but that each spouse tends to rise to the person who spends higher in each category. So there's that phrase, that cliche, two can leave, live cheaper than one. Yeah. But what I have actually experienced with clients, students, is that if you have two people get together, you get married, and, they, and one does five-star vacations, the other one does one-star vacations, they tend to gravitate towards the five-star because they're not... They got to go on vacation together. So now they've, they've just increased their vacation, total vacation budget a lot. And the same goes with clothing and groceries. People tend to step up towards the person who was p- spending more in that category. So that's something to be, just be aware of. I mean, a lot of being successful with money, I think, is awareness. And then once you're aware, saying, okay, I know I'm stepping up to my spouse and we're now both going on five-star vacations, but we're going to make this work by taking money from another category. Maybe I'm not going to step up. You know, I'm not going to be going to the salon where my spouse goes. I'm going to get really cheap haircuts or something, or I'm not going to shop at the expensive clothing stores my spouse spends shops at. So I think that kind of thing, that bringing that awareness so it doesn't just happen by default is really good. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. And I think where it gets challenging is when there's not a sense of mutuality and respect in the relationship. So what I mean by that is like, kind of this is my money I earn. And like maybe you're not quite as entitled to yes. share in the benefit of the money that I earn or bring to the table. And I kind of have this resentment that you're I'm supporting you and me. You know what I mean? And so yes. it gets a little stickier and it it really gets down into some deeper psychological and I don't know, dare I say moral kind of dilemmas for folks around what's fair and just. Yeah. And I think this is where the richness is, is like 
to be able to see the problem with money is that it's so taboo. It is taboo is, you know, like religion or politics. It's very hard to talk about it. We were trained as children not to talk about it. And if you can just bring light, go on these money dates, share that, yeah, this is tricky because I come from a lot of money or I make a lot more money than you. And it feels strange that all of a sudden I am paying for these expensive vacations. I'm paying for a lot more of the household budget. And I think expressing that and just knowing like, yeah, so many couples wrestle with this stuff. Like you're not alone. That's an important thing. And that how do we solve this? Because it's an interesting thing to resolve the fact that, wow, we earn different amounts of money. And what do we do with that? And there's not a right way. I don't have an easy solution because I've seen couples do it all differently. And some make the decision, yeah, like, yeah, uh, my spouse is a social worker. I'm a surgeon. And of course, I'm going to put in 90% of the money to the household budget. And other people do it differently, you know, or they'll have a spouse pay for certain things entirely and the other spouse pays for other things. Or, you know, they'll, you know, I know one couple, they have separate, they do separate kinds of like one spouse can do very fancy solo vacations. The other one can't. So there's all different ways of working it so that it feels good to both people. I think one thing that that could be helpful for couples and bring a lot of connection and understanding of each other is telling your money story to your spouse. What was it like in your grandparents' house around money? What was it like in your parents' house around money? I think that and what were the messages, the beliefs that you inherited around money from your grandparents, aunts and uncles, parents, so that your spouse has a better understanding about maybe why you overspend or oversave or overly worry about money. That I find very helpful, or maybe even give you some insight into how to deal with the fact that things are uneven, if you will. I talk about the money story a lot on this podcast. I'm always happy to have it come up because I feel like Oh, that's everyday knowledge for people to do this. But what I forget is most of us have never really taken the time to slow down and reflect on what did I learn from my each of my grandparents about money? How did what my grandparents do with money impact my parents and what they decided to do or not do? And then how have my parents impacted me? And I think developmentally, this is a major adult developmental task is coming to terms with who your parents were who your grandparents were, what they taught you about money. And this is not about throwing anybody under the bus, but it's really getting a mature perspective. I was actually writing this morning about religious, spiritual, or philosophical kind of tip slogans that you kind of pick up and take on as truth, right? And the, there was one from Matthew about easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, right? Yes, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man can get uh, into the kingdom of heaven than a rich man can get into heaven. Yes. And so recognizing and respecting people are on a wide spectrum of belief systems as they listen to this. But for me, that was so emblematic of I took it to internalize it's not okay to be rich. Yes. And that's going to be a problem for me. And so that's been a unconscious suppressant to wanting to build wealth and be comfortable with growing wealth. And yes creating some distance. And so that symbolizes a number of teachings from, for me, the Christian tradition, which is the one I grew up in. Yeah, yeah. We can look at 
all the major traditions, they all have teachings about money. And the question is, how do they fit into your life now? And how do you understand them? I think curious about your two cents. Yes, yes. No, I'm, I think that one of the benefits of, of naming beliefs that we pick up from religion or from just in the culture, from our parents, from our grandparents, is that there have been studies that show that when you're aware of your beliefs, they're less likely to, to control you. You have a little more power over those beliefs than those beliefs have power over you. And the belief, for example, that money is evil, which is essentially that what that that camel phrase is getting at is that, you know, you can't get a rich man into heaven. Money is evil. That the awareness that that is a belief that one has, that it may not be entirely true, because it's really that how do you use this energy of money? That awareness is very helpful in terms of you being able to access other points of view, or you not being so, having this belief be so concrete in your thinking, you're less likely to be like reactive or it's less likely to control you that belief. Like, you know, there, like a lot of women I work with have beliefs like I can't earn more than X dollars a year. You know, if you can be aware of that belief, it's less likely to grip you. Yeah. I think that awareness. And I think, I mean, the other thing that we learned from Christianity and many other religions is about generosity, which is, I think of it both in terms of money, but just in the, in our, how we, our posture in life, do we have a generous posture? Are we, are we a giving person? Because I think that is a pathway. And actually a meditation teacher I know says that generosity is the path to abundance. And what he's talking about is being generous in all ways, being generous with your finances, but being generous with your time, your attention. I mean, today, you know, in social media, with social media, our attention is perhaps the most valuable resource. And just giving your attention to your spouse, for example, or another person can be an incredible generous act. And when we do these generous acts, there's been research that shows it fills us up, that we feel wealthier when we give money, time, attention away, believe it or not. That teaching is so familiar to me. And I, and I often wonder about, and I've heard some of those stories where it almost has, it gets taken almost too literally or almost too far or applied in the wrong way. And it becomes almost counterproductive. Like people will kind of lose any sense of who they are or any sense of holding on to anything for themselves. Oh, because they've forgotten that they're one of the persons they need to be generous to. That might be the missing key, right? Is that teaching is, at least as I had internalized, it was so other focused. Yeah. 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 Thank you for mentioning that, Ed, because I didn't, yeah, I didn't certainly include that, but that's been a piece for me that has been very helpful is recognizing that I, I am a part of this universe and I need to be generous to myself also. Otherwise I can't keep giving. I mean, it's like, if you think of yourself as like a giving tree, how do you keep producing fruit if you're not taking care of yourself? So we need to be generous to ourselves as well. And I I think that's a really good point that you're raising that we can take some of these ideas and take them to the extreme and, and misinterpret them that we think we should just be giving away all our money, all our time to other people. 
be constantly caretaking others. And that's going to rob us of our own fuel. Like we need our own. And we, we sort of have this sense, I think, of when we're overdoing it and to really listen. But yeah, I mean, often I think of the, the oxygen mask in the planes, you know, you got to put on your own oxygen mask first. And I think this, I think it makes sense. It applies to money too, to take care of yourself first and make sure you're getting your basic needs met so that you can be generous with others. At least at the point that I'm at on my own journey is there, it's more of a balance. It's take care of and being generous towards other, but self-generosity, maybe I haven't quite put those two words together, but self-generosity as well is really is okay to take care of yourself. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you make me think about my parents and I felt like my parents were always into sacrifice. And as I became a teenager, I actually resented that about them, that they weren't enjoying their lives so much. They were so into sacrificing for their kids. And I think that it wasn't so much modeling that sense of living a good life because they were so... Yeah, so frugal with their own well-being that I've tried to come a little more into balance in my life by yeah, showing my kids that it's okay. It's okay to, to take good care of yourself. You don't need to just focus on the next generation because otherwise they're going to get that message that they should only focus on the next generation. Then I think you know, from the field of family therapy, we kind of we can talk about like generation skipping, like it like one generation responds one. And then the next goes the other direction and it gets a little more messy. It's not a perfect, clean, self-sacrificing, self-absorbed, self-sacrificing. But there's when there's one polarity, there's the opposite and people will overcorrect. And it seems like the healthy, finding the healthy middle between the two polarities is kind of the goal for so much of it, at least at this point in my my perspective. I think so. I think that that we, yes, I mean, finding that, that balance with for ourselves is that there's a part of some of us. I mean, I think I'm like, you know, like I want to just think that if I just do this, then I'll be fine. And life is a bit more gray than that. And, and that often we have to find the middle. It's not just about saving all your money. That's what I used to think. If I just save everything, I'll be okay. And I've discovered that's really not true for me because, because then if you're what I found when by just saving money is it created a sense of fear, even like a different kind of fear from like, I don't have any money, but a fear that, well, what happens? What if something happens to all this money? And then what do I have to show for, for my life? Because I'm not really living my life today. Right. I'm putting all my bets on the future. So I think you're right. It is coming to this sense of, of a balance for each of us. And I think that's so true with a, in a couple situation is, is to find a path forward so that the two of you can get a good portion of your needs met. Maybe not going to get every need met, but you can also really enjoy your lives together, which I think is so important is to, you know, I always say, people say, say to me, well, what if I'm out of money? If I have nothing to save, I often say, say, save a dollar a month, save something just energetically get in the habit, and especially as a couple, get in the habit of doing the things that you know are going to support you, even if you do them at a minimal level. Yeah, I think that's 
there's so much wisdom in that. And I think thinking about my own life and some transitions my wife and I have gone through in talking with our planner, it, there's different perspectives. So we'll take it for what it is, is, yeah. is just stop saving completely for in your retirement accounts as you're changing this direction. And, and I think that that was the intellectually right answer, right? It frees up the most cash flow to stop saving for the future to put your investment here. Yeah. But energetically, it felt like this, just this loss, this grief of not, because it didn't honor this internal rule of regularly be saving for the future. And so I think that that's when you're getting advice from financial planners or advisors, most of us are well-intended and wanting to do the right thing. But the thing that we, I guess I'm wanting to say here is, I'm curious your thoughts is check in with your own body and see how it sits with you. And if it doesn't sit right, Mm. then that's okay. Like, as advisors, we don't know always what's right. We're intending to be helpful, but sometimes our guidance can be misguided a little bit without us knowing. So, you know, what? How do you recognize when like something you've offered your clients is not landing so well? And like, okay, well, maybe we need to rethink this a little. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm always trying to do with clients is it's taken me a while to realize that if I can help them get to their own answers, that's going to be way more impactful than if I just tell them what to do. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know, you know, if I'm thinking about, you know, my teenage son or something, if I tell him to exercise, he's not going to do it. If I can somehow inspire him to exercise, so it's coming from him, way more likely. And it's the same with, you know, our clients is that you've got to find a way, don't just save money because someone told you to save money. Otherwise it won't be sustainable. You have to find that reason for doing it. And maybe it's going to be at a level. Maybe you don't want to, maybe I believe in success. I like, I tell people, you know, start small with your savings, do that for several months. If you still feel like you're not saving enough, then increase it and keep increasing it until you get to that level that feels right. Rather than starting, you know, some people will start with the hundred pushups a day and then they, they burn out. Right. So start at a level that feels doable, and then you can just keep ex- expanding it, is what I say. But you know, I, what I try to do when I'm in a meeting with a client is really get curious, get rid of my bias, and really say to myself, they have the answers. They know themselves better than I do. And the worst thing I can do is try to slap on a recommendation just because other clients have done it and really see what's best here. What's the best thing here? And really listen, because if, especially with a couple, I've had my best meetings when the couple does 99% of the talking and then they say at the end, thank you so much. That was amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I do? (laughs) But I just provided the space for them to have these insights, for them to brainstorm. That's what we all want is we want, we want our own solutions to things. And we might want the support of an advisor to tell us about maybe where the riverbanks are, so we don't fall off a cliff. But essentially, we know our situation. We want to come up with, with the solutions. I think that's so powerful. And I feel like that's probably the biggest gift that I, I picked up along the way through going through the training as a therapist. And it took me a long time to get my head fully over to that is the clients have the answers. Your job is help them figure out what their answers are. right? And that's different than conventional financial advising world where Clients come to me with a problem. I I need to know how much money to save for retirement. And oh, by the way, I want to sell a house in five years and I want to fund my kids' college education. How do I make it all work? 
that's a great financial planning question. And we can put all your numbers in the software and help you see like, well, okay, you're going to need to save X amount and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, like, is that really what you want? Is that life on purpose? Is that what your kids want? Is that what your spouse wants? Are you having those conversations also? And so we can't tell you, well, you should retire at 65. You should retire at 70. You should retire at 50. No, you got to know when you want to retire and we'll help you figure out whether you're on track for that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think too many advisors, that whole, that, that idea of retirement is really changing. And a lot of advisors are waking up that people are retiring from what they don't love anymore, but they're not retiring. They're going from one thing to something else, perhaps. It's like, I'm, my clients want to stay engaged and purposeful, even if they have enough money. They might still want to be working and earning because it's a way that keep them engaged. So that idea that I used to sell of, oh my God, I'm going to get you to retirement. It's going to be so great. They don't want to get to like that place where they just play shuffleboard. It's not to say that there aren't some amazing people some amazing possibilities for retirement other than shop support. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think the point that maybe, I think the point that you're trying to make is, as humans, we need purpose and meaning in our life. And yes. even if we can get to the financial number that says, ever need to earn another dollar to support yourself in life, whether you call it retirement or financial independence or whatever, there's a mathematical point when we can figure that out. But your need for purpose, meaning, relationships doesn't go away. And yeah, for most of us, we find a large part of that through work and engagement, doing something yeah. Yeah. constructive. Yeah, that's why the other thing I counsel people on is finding work, especially as you get into your 40s or, or 50s, but finding work that you really love that can be sustainable. Because if you're working in something that where you're just going to burn out from it, Retirement may not be what you think it's going to be. For some people, it works. But I'm finding for a lot of people, especially people who, you know, are purpose-driven, it's not easy to go from being the CEO of a huge company to no structure at all. Right. I mean, it's, I think that that's, there's a lot there. And I mean, it's maybe not a direct analogy, but I know that that in my own journey, I lost the structure and the meaning of what am I supposed to do right? when my, my wife, she was building her dental practice and I realized like, no, oh, she's ahead of me and I'll stay home. And it's not the same thing as being that kind of at the retirement age, but it was like, wait, but my whole life and understanding of what I'm supposed to do is to be work and to provide for my family. And now that problem has been alleviated. What do I do with myself? Yeah. And so whether that happens earlier in your life or later in your life, I imagine you've worked with a number of business owners or other tech employees, people that have very young and had a company go public and now all of a sudden they've got millions of dollars and like well, i don't need to work surprise what do i do so, kind of more of a sudden money situation yes yeah so i think you know spouses can also help each other on those their career paths of looking at like is this career that you're doing sustainable because if it isn't maybe you should be pivoting to something and And that's where sometimes the numbers can be deceiving. Like you might be making half a million dollars a year working for a large tech company, but if you can only do it for 10 years, that might be less lifetime earnings than earning $200,000 working somewhere else 
where you can work for 30 years instead of 10. So I often think in terms of lifetime earnings for people is Mm -hmm. what's going to produce the most lifetime earnings and the most lifetime joy and purpose as well, because not everyone can stay in those really intense jobs for 30 years or something. Burnout is a real issue and yeah, yeah. don't want to grind yourself. In- yeah. I mean, they don't pay those kinds of salaries for nothing. They're expecting a lot from you and keep that in mind. And it works. I mean, I, I have clients where working for a large tech firm, making incredible amount of money really works for them. That they have figured out how to manage their lives with it. But for many people, I mean, I just had someone just just leave, just, she just got burnt out and she needed a couple of years to recover even from it before she was willing to accept another job. So she recognized that the annual salary is not maybe as important as sort of your lifetime salary. And I appreciate you adding that lifetime quality, right? And, and that's finding that balance of yeah. lifetime quality and the work you're doing and the income. And, you know, if you can get that combination, yeah. that's really a, a one-two punch. Spencer, it's been such a great time talking about, I mean, such a breadth of different things. And, and you know, it's kind of weaving back and forth around couples. And I just wanted to highlight one of the things I really appreciate to hear you say is we. When you talked about couples, it was always we. And I think that that's where couples get so kind of, it's me versus you. And it's yes, healthy couples have a we mindset. And a we mindset doesn't mean I've lost my identity or you've given up yours. We both have our eyes in the we. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with Dan Siegel by any chance? Have you heard of him? Yes, yes, yes. He talks about that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think, I think it's so astute what you're saying that if we can come from that place and say, again, like, okay, it's sort of like that example I gave where you think about another couple that has your situation. It's like, okay, one of us wants to buy this huge home. The other person wants an apartment in the city. Right. What do we do here? This is an interesting dilemma, like challenge. Like, can we bring some excitement to it? Wow, look how, look how divergent our, our ideas are. Let's see what, what can we create here around that. And get curious about your partner. Tell me more about what you're hoping to achieve with this big house that you want to buy or this this apartment in the city that you want to buy, what's behind that? And if we can come more from that we place and less judgmental place, you have to remember this is where that money story comes in handy to know it, that money is so triggering for us human beings. And how could it not be? You can't talk about it. We're trained early on. And it's a difficult topic. It's associated with our self-worth and anything self-associated with our self-worth is like, you better not say anything critical. Right, right. So you know your spouse is on guard for anything you say around money. So if, if you can just bring more compassion to your partner, bring compassion to yourself and just start to, like you said, use, come at it from a we, come at it from a how do we solve this thing together kind of thing? How do we not make either of us wrong? We both have good ideas here. I think there's such richness in that both to grow financially and to grow as a couple. Yeah. What a great way to end this conversation. Spencer, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world and the lives that you're impacting. It inspires me to continue on my own path. And I know we need more people focused on helping couples navigate both the technical and the relational side of money. It's So thank you so much. and. 
we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to also say to all the listeners that if any of this resonates, you can go. I have a list of free resources on my website that you can grab. Um, You can go to spencer-sherman.com forward slash free. Spencer-sherman.com forward slash free. And you'll be able to get some free resources. Thank you. I appreciate you mentioning that. And your firm name is Abacus Wealth Management. So people can find you there. And they're a wonderful leading firm. And we didn't really touch on mindfulness fully, but that is in part of the company ethos for for Abacus. It is. We're actually called Abacus Wealth Partners. And there might be another firm with Abacus Wealth Management, but we're based in, we have offices in Philadelphia and San Francisco and Los Angeles. And we serve people all over the country. And yes, we infuse mindfulness because it's the emotions are a big part of money. And we also do pro bono work. So if somebody, if you can't afford a financial advisor, you can also reach out to us for that. Oh, that's a huge gift and offering. Thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Spencer. Have a wonderful afternoon and we'll talk again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great to talk with you. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.